Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. For over a generation, the history of the American West has been described by scholars as one of violence, which includes genocide, ethnic cleansing, and settler colonialism. While this replaced an older history, which spoke of winning the West and the triumph of civilization, curiously enough, both the old and now aging histories of the West focused on violence. After all, even in the popular imagination, every Western town hosted a gunfight in its one street on a nearly daily basis. But what if amidst the violence, there were also moments of concord and overcoming difference? What if these moments of concord played out in more or less the same place and time as the moments of violence? This is the argument of Stephen Aaron in his new book, Peace and Friendship, an alternative history of the American West, which investigates moments where unexpectedly peaceful relationships were built in the American West. Stephen Aaron is Professor Emeritus of History at UCLA and President of the Autry Museum of the American West in Los Angeles. Stephen, welcome to Historically Thinking. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So what, first of all, is an alternative history? Um, and what makes it different from alternate history or even history? <laughs> well, I should say that one of the confusions that I think my title might um, elicit, uh, and I hope I have to take pains to correct right away in the introduction to the book, is the distinction between alternative history and what I call all, and what is called alternate history. And indeed, if you Google those two terms, if you Google alternative history, it will automatically link you to alternate history. Alternate history is the genre, really it's not history, it's fiction, often sometimes science fiction. Um, it is where historical facts are deliberately altered. It's a what if history, uh, sometimes a what might have been history in its more scholarly veneer, um, it's sometimes called counterfactual speculation. Uh, but either way, it is deliberately moving away from what happened to, as I say, what might have happened. Um, or what if these things had happened, changing this variable or that variable, or changing this incident or that incident. And that's an enormously popular genre. Uh, the man in the high castle being one of the more recent examples that sort of gets turned into a television series. Uh, but, and indeed, the two most common, I think, versions of alternate history focus on the, what if the Nazis had won the Second World War? And then in the US context, what if the South had won the Civil War? It's probably the biggest of the genres. I am not interested in that. As I say in the book, I am not interested in alternate history, of writing an alternate history. I think it can be a fascinating um, game to play but it wasn't the one I was interested in doing. And alternative history, I take the different meaning, alternative in some ways as running uh, counter to or against the mainstream in some ways. And if I think of it as a, a mainstream of history, and then I have my alternative current that runs sort of adjacent to it, sometimes uh, intermingling with it. Um, it's very much a history because mine is a history that tries to stick to what happened as opposed to what if something had happened. And so in that sense, my alternative history is, I think, very much a history. It's just one that runs a little bit against the grain. Uh, and in this case, 
the grain of Western history being one that has long been dominated by, by bloodshed, uh, by violence. That violence is what won the West in the older version, as you said in the introduction of, about Western history. And in the newer version, violence is decried for bringing all of the evils and ills of colonialism and environmental despoliation and so forth uh, to the peoples of the Americas. Mm -hmm. What is the American West? <laughs> um, and I, I mean, and based on your chapters, your chapters are constructed around encounters in places. And Montanans, well, hell, Ohioans might be surprised to find the first place is Chillicothe. Is it Chillicothe? Uh, Ohio. And, and this, um, you know, for me as an early American historian, Ohio is the West. At least yes. I think of that. And mm. it's the West because that's the West that all Virginians are talking about and want a piece of and want some of the action that's going to go out on out there in, in the West. But now that does not seem to us like the West. We have, I think, much more strict definitions of the West in our in our mental are, are engraved over the, the way that in our minds and the way that influenced the way we see things? That's a question that historians of the American West, the what is the West question, have spent a lot of time debating. Um, and I think you're right that today, very few people think of the American West as, as Ohio being an American West. Um, that I think we would today define the American West as some version of the Western part of the United States um, with its Eastern boundaries, not necessarily clearly defined, but, uh, and indeed uh, Western historians spend a lot of time thinking about not so much the question of what is the West, but where is the West? And again, I think in contemporary vision, the where is the West question, coincident with the what is the West idea um, would be the western half of the United States, or maybe west of the Mississippi, or sometimes west of the Missouri Bend, or sometimes the 100th Meridian is used as a stand-in, uh, running down the center of the plains. Um, whether Alaska and Hawaii get included then becomes a subject of sometimes debate and discussion. Uh, there is an older version, though, uh, that early American historians obviously had little problem seeing it that way, that sees, and this, as I said, really is one of the foundations for the, what was the kind of the older Western history associated with, most prominently with Frederick Jackson Turner. That is the West as a moving place that shifted as the frontiers of the United States moved westward. And so there was an early American West, a first American West, a first West of the United States, that is the West that the United States acquires from Great Britain as a result of its treaty uh, that gives the United States its first boundaries. And that West is from the Appalachians to the Mississippi River, essentially, with Ohio certainly very much in the center of this new first American West. But as American expansion, as American westward expansion, or as the westward expansion of the United States proceeds, that definition of what is West and where is West shifts. And so perhaps I should have called the subtitle of the book in that sense, An Alternative History of American Wests in the plural. And indeed, um, I've spent my, much of my career as a historian of the American West, associated really with the history of frontiers and borderlands uh, and their place and meaning. Um, and the previous book that I'd written, uh, also for Oxford University Press, was part of their very short introduction series. Um, and there, 
um, you know, I had made the, I tried try to argue given my sense of the West and westward expansion as moving the boundaries of the West and shifting what is West or where is West. I had argued for the plural in the title. And there my editor, who was also the editor for this book said, nope, you know, we, we don't want to confuse people any more than your narrative might already. So it's a, 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 the American West, a very short introduction. And so to hear the book is Peace and Friendship and Alternative History of the American West, even though maybe it should have been called an alternative history of the American frontier, because I really focus on this book, which perhaps is volume one of this, um, only on the first century of the expansion of the United States. But just to drive this home, um, we've got, uh, as since the chapters are go along place, places, we've got Chillicothe, Apple Creek, which is in southeastern Missouri, if I've got that right, um, Fort Clatsop, which is at the mouth of the Columbia River on the Pacific, back to Apple Creek, Chimney Rock, which is central for the westward, the westward wag, was that the Oregon Trail? Yeah, Oregon, um, California Trail. Right, yeah. Oregon Trail, and then finally Dodge City. So Chimney Rock, uh, Chimney Rock and Dodge, Chimney Rock for players of an Oregon Trail, a video game, and Dodge City for anyone who's watched any Western movie in the last 100 years. Those are the two most familiar names. They're also the most, quote unquote, in the popular, I, I would say the popular magic are the Western places. Um, the other well, place. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't write Fort Clatsop out in the sense. I that, wouldn't either. But it's interesting, though, that even though that is as west as it gets, yes, uh, there's some way that it doesn't fit in with uh, a popular imagination of a western or the well, west. Or look, and that's and, for, that, and that. This is this is. I, I'm just. I'm just. I'm. I'm representing the people here, Steve. No, no, you're I'm absolutely right. Look, I'll give people. you another example. I spent a quarter century teaching. Uh, being a member of the faculty at UCLA, as you mentioned. And uh, there, I, one of my chief courses was the course on the history of the American West. And I used to always ask the students, a good number of whom came from California, Southern California, though the student body obviously was also national and international, but a good percentage came from um, Southern California. And I would always ask them, you know, what do you think of yourselves as being Westerners? Um, and very few of them who are from California did. They sort of, in a sense, defined California. In fact, for them, the West was something really out there and back, out there, out there and back then. Um, it was something they associated, just as you do, with the um, with those mythic spots to the east of Los Angeles. Um, uh, and in that sense, even though I would I would argue that you know L.A. was the place in Hollywood, at least, where much of our Western mythology was also partly constructed or invented too. But they write L.A. out of the West. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting because re having read John Ferger's new book on California, uh, I mean, L.A. is makes Dodge City residents would blanch at the scale of sort of uh, of violence and sort of westernness. You know what we associate with sort of you know uh, uh, that went on in L.A. Well, even more so in Johnny Ferger's previous book, Eternity Street. Uh, which is specifically about LA in the frontier era, in the sort of era of its American conquest. Um, very much, you know, the rates of homicide in LA far exceed in 1850s, for example, far exceed anything that happens basically in Dodge City uh, in its heyday as a cow town 20 years later. But in the popular imagination, Dodge City is, is stands still as the metaphor 
for the wildest the of American places. violence, really, yes. in, in many ways. It's, it's, right. it's, you know, if we want to get film critic, we would say that that's the beating heart of the American violence. So we could, that, this is, we impose a lot of things on Dodge City and places like it. Um, but let's, let's go instead, go to Chillicothe uh, and to that, um, <laughs> should we call him the first American Westerner? Daniel Boone. Yeah, I think, well, Boone certainly, you know, plays that role. Even in his own lifetime, he yes. becomes a legend, a myth in his own time. And he sometimes later in life tries to play to his own myth um, because he is a celebrity, um, uh, thanks to John Filson's autobiography. I put that in quotes of Boone. Um, and in a sense, he is, uh, I think, often constructed or seen as that first American frontier hero uh, or the first hero of the United States' uh, westward frontier. And yet I think Boone, Boone's own life, especially during the American Revolution and when what brings him to Chillicothe, um, sees him in a much more ambivalent place about his Americanness uh, or about where he really fits. Uh, and Chillicothe, Ohio is uh, actually a shifting site. Uh, it is not where the current city of Chillicothe is. Uh, it lies many miles away from that. Uh, where, where Chillicothe, if you go to a map today and look at Chillicothe, that is not the Chillicothe. Uh, there were, in fact, many Chillicothe's. Um, uh, and the one I'm looking at is, the, is a, principally a Shawnee Indian town, uh, but uh, was actually much more multi-ethnic than that uh, in terms of its Indian population that lived there and also in terms of the others who resided there. Um, let me hold, give me one second here. Uh, but I, I think it's, it is a... Um, it is the place to which Daniel Boone was taken in 1778 when he and a number of his fellow Kentucky pioneers were taken prisoner uh, by, I said, again, mostly Shawnee Indian group who bring him back to Chillicothe and adopt Boone and many of the other uh, captives that they take with him as part of a long tradition uh, among Shawnees and other woodland Indian peoples, among many Indian peoples. Could you explain that tradition? Because that, that will be, that's, people might have heard of it, but I've, I've, I've experienced this as a novel concept to many people. Well, so, I mean, look, again, going back to the Westerns that you talked about, um, you know, one of the most famous Westerns is, of course, John Wayne's The Searchers, John Ford's, one of, you know, one of his signature Westerns. And that, too, hinges on the taking of a white captive um, by the Comanches and, you know, what happens to... To her and then John Wayne's pursuit of her and trying to reclaim her, redeem her, uh, and maybe to kill her uh, because he sees her as having been despoiled uh, by living among the Indians and becoming an Indian. But that's part of a, a long tradition among the Indians, uh, among many Indian groups, of seeking both to, quote, cover their dead uh, by replacing, uh, and, and it's part of mourning traditions, by replacing and adopting uh, and turning, in, turning enemies into kin. Uh, uh, and then Daniel Boone, in a sense, is part of that long tradition dating back through the colonial period uh, and into the 19th century. In Boone's case, though, I think it comes at a particularly pivotal moment in his life and a pivotal moment in the life of the United States, because this is 1778, right in the heart of the American Revolution. And whether the territory that Boone pioneered, Kentucky, would be an American place or something else, uh, remained very much uh, to be determined. Uh, and I think in, in capturing Boone and imprisoning him and adopting him, indeed adopted by a Shawnee headman, Blackfish, 
uh, Boone is given the opportunity, along with many other captives, of joining the Indians. And I argue that although Boone is there only for a few months, um, there's certainly a great temptation for him in the attractions of Indian life. Uh, I'm not the only person who's made this argument about Daniel Boone. I think um, Boone, as a man who, who, most, who, who loved hunting and loved life in the woods, you know, found the, found the sort of Indian uh, mode of living, uh, the mix of hunting and farming, and one that assigned principal responsibility for farming to women uh, and allowing men sort of hunt to hunt to be the principal hunters uh, was particularly attractive to him. But I think the communalism of Indian life attracted him. Um, the reciprocity and relative equality of, of Indian, of the Shawnees in the, in the Chillicothe was also attractive to him. Um, the way in which he was treated by Blackfish uh, and his new kin uh, was also att attractive to him. The uncertainty of his own situation in Kentucky, and especially the uncertainty of his land claims in Kentucky, gave him reason to, uh, to as I say, be uh, also lured uh, or tempted by what was what was offered to him by the Shawnees. Um, I think also his own, you know, I think we only in retrospect try to turn Daniel Boone and other pioneers into national heroes. Uh, that in the time of the American Revolution, men like Boone, I think their attachments were less to any sort of nation or empire than they were to, to locality, to their place, to their kin, um, to, their, to, their, to their families and so forth. And in that sense, um, the national attachments were certainly not in any ways yet fixed. He, after all, he became a subject of the King of Spain after this. I mean, it's like, you know, he... Um national boundaries don't didn't seem to mean a whole lot to him he had already spent um immense amounts of time away from his family i mean having a woman run a farm is basically the way he ran his life i mean uh already um and it's interesting that he, I, I and in terms of his attachment to localities um i'll talk about this at the end i think it's um he certainly is a template for our idea of a an american a western going into the West because he moves all the bloody time. Right. I, I should have said locality. I think it should be a localist sort of orientation, meaning that his orientation and his attachments were more to those immediately around him, in a sense, than it was to any sort of larger nation state or empire uh, in that sense. I think that's how I should have framed it. And look, Boone, though, does give up his opportunity to stay among the Shawnees. And with, I think, that I, are, I would argue that a pivotal moment passes, uh, that it is an important turning point, not only for him, but for the larger possibility. Uh, and in some ways, mine is a book about possibilities lost. Um, it's, uh, and I think in that sense, the possibility of Indians and Euro-Americans living as the Shawnees had hoped as one people uh, in the Ohio Valley, really, whatever possibility existed, I think, falls away um, with Boone's departure, and lots of other things are happening, too. Not least that nation states or nations and empires are intervening even more directly in what had been a local conflict between American pioneers and Ohio Valley Indians uh, that, armed by the British and the United States or the Virgin United States, suddenly what had been a local conflict 
with certain with in which violence was if not absent violence was contained or constrained by just the absence of certain resources as you get nation states and empires entering it allows people it breaks whatever accommodations were in place between peoples or whatever constraints were in, in place and it opens up i think a much larger and bloodier warfare uh, and in that sense i think this is an argument that runs through several chapters of the book too that we tend to think and our mythology constructs well it's you know the state comes and it brings with it law and order in what had been this lawless frontier space uh, or in this wild west space or this in incredibly violent place. Um, and then the, the state or the nation comes in and is able to impose order and that quiets violence. And there's something to that story that is central to the mainstream history. But I think it also leaves out what's in this adjacent space or in this alternative history space, which is the way in which local arrangements in various places curb violence, create accommodations, allow people to overcome differences sometimes um, instead of being always overcome by those differences. Uh, and yeah, I just I, I, I just want to make a crazy comparative historical leap because I was I've been thinking a lot about this since reading the book and I've been thinking when Charlemagne <laughs> was reconstant I know reconstituting an empire a, a, a certain empire in what we now call in Francia let's just call it that because it's not France it's Francia um, and as he's doing that he is it's good to be in some parts of Francia uh, where someone is taking care of the roads uh, minting better coinage tidying things up rewriting the laws, setting up school. Very nice. The borders are scenes of continual warfare for throughout his reign. And there are certain borders. It might be in, in say, along the Pyrenees with the, the Basques or with the Visigoths or with the Moors. You might have had, and we don't know, we're never, we're never going to have probably adequate sources to know. You might have had a sort of accommodating relationship. But all of a sudden, when once Charlemagne appoints a count of the mark, a marquise, to run the border, there's going to be a state of continual warfare, where prior, those accommodating relationships might have led to like some trade, some low-level trade, maybe occasionally some raids and stuff, because, you know, boys will have fun. But once the state gets involved, once the empire gets involved, things change in a very dramatic way. And we could say that even more amongst the on the Saxon borderlands where, you know, famously 10,000 are executed and 20,000 are baptized in the same day. You know, Saxons are being taken off to be castrated in Verdun and being sold to the Islamic Spain and on and on and on. Um, once you once the state comes like that, you're going to have a very different situation on the frontier than what almost necessarily has to exist when no one power has supremacy. So these are fascinating questions. And I look, I... And the co-author uh, of a world history textbook, uh, which has now gone, I was, I was part of the team for five editions. I'm now out of it. But uh, Worlds Together, Worlds Apart uh, is the, uh, and, and I've spent a lot of time trying to think about these parallels. And in fact, one of the articles that I guess I'm most clearly known for, best known about, is a piece that I co-wrote with Jeremy Edelman in the American Historical Review um, that was the subject then of some forums and debates. Um, 
called From Borderlands to Borders, which makes an argument similar to the one you've just made about these places, these borderland places that lie in between empires, on the borders of empires, and sometimes allow the local people to negotiate more favorable relations by being able to play imperial rivals off one another, which is an argument that we make for North America, uh, and especially in the interior of North America in the 18th and early 19th centuries, where where we argue there are all these spaces where, um, and I think some of the places I talk about fit into this model, where Indian peoples in particular are able to negotiate and sometimes even dictate uh, more favorable terms based on their ability to play Spanish, French, English, British off one another, or later the United States even. Um, the problem with it, you know, again, the pushback, if we want to pursue this world historical parallels is, I'm afraid today, maybe I think more of Ukraine uh, as being a place sometimes, or, you know, those that whole Eastern Central European areas between, you know, powerful empires to the west and to the east and often being kind of the the bloody ground between not the not the peaceful ground between uh so it i think it can cut both ways in, in at least what i think in world historical contexts no i i think that's 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 fair um i mean i was also trying i i i'll forbear from the comparison to the southwestern byzantine frontier with you know with the arabs where they, you've got this uh, is a very unique culture that grows up in chronicles of frontiersmen and who go back and and spain we could see the same thing in spain between the the islamic areas and the christian areas um but let's talk about apple creek missouri right, i was gonna say we, we, we've <laughs> so, far afield here but i think yeah, the we have so, are absolutely worth thinking about they're worth thinking about i'm gonna i'll in the show notes we'll link to an earlier conversation about eastern europe where uh, we talked about ecological edges between a field and a woods edges are always interesting and uh that's why eastern europe is perennially interesting and that's why the american west uh when you think about it is is always interesting as well so i'd amend your statement just slightly i tweak it slightly i'd say Edges are always interesting, and intersections are always interesting. Uh, and look, intersections can be dangerous places. If you step into a crossroads and don't look both ways, uh, sometimes bad things happen. But they're also the places, and this is what has long fascinated me about frontiers and borderlands uh, in the Amer- as the, of the American West uh, and more broadly across other regions of the world, um, that these are places where often state authority is limited, um, and where local peoples have a little more flexibility and, and maneuverability uh, in those spaces where political authority is contested or uncertain. Um, and I think that those kind of intersections, which lie at the edge, depending upon what perspective you're taking, um, uh, one person's borderland is another person's homeland, uh, oftentimes. But I think um, they, I think these kind of places make for the most fruitful and fascinating cultural convergences. Sometimes I should say cultural collisions where things really turn really ugly and bad, but sometimes opening up the possibility for cultural convergences. And that theme is one that I've been always long interested in exploring and I think comes out in this book as well. So Apple Creek, uh, where is it and why? I mean, there are two chapters on it in the book and in a way the, even the chapter on Fort Clatsop kind of is looking, there's other chapters are looking back to it or looking yep. over to it. So where is it and why is it so important uh, in the Stephen Aaron universe? <laughs> well, I think Apple Creek is so fascinating uh, for itself, 
Um, it is the place in the late 18th century where many Shawnees and other, their neighbors, Delaware Indians and Shawnees, take refuge at the invitation of the Spanish after losing out, in a sense, uh, at Chillicothe, Ohio, and in, the, in that uh, region, uh, after sort of being sort of forced to take refuge, they find it in what is then Spanish Louisiana, having Spain having taken possession of it uh, after the Seven Years' War from France. Uh, what makes this place remarkable is that then in the 1780s, but really in the 1790s, they're joined, these Shawnees, are joined by many of the same Americans, Americans also who had lost their lands often in Kentucky through legal processes and find themselves taking refuge, sometimes at the invitation of the Spanish. They move across the borders of the United States into Spanish territory and find land, often taking it up in and around Apple Creek in southeastern Missouri. Uh, and they live next door to um, Shawnee and Delawares, the very people whom they had been at war with uh, in the Ohio Valley in the 1770s and 1780s. And yet, if for those expecting history to merely repeat itself, and among these refugees, as you mentioned earlier, is Daniel Boone. He doesn't settle at Apple Creek. He settles nearby, uh, but his is a similar situation. And I think you see similar situations throughout that part of what's called Upper Louisiana by the Spanish, uh, the, what is we think of now as the state of Missouri, uh, various places there on the west bank of the Mississippi River and the lower Missouri River, where Americans and Indians, both refugees from the United States, in a sense, uh, both you know, seeking greater security and land, um, find themselves again thrown together, but rather than immediately restarting the war, they develop a remarkable accommodation. And Boone, especially, um, lives contentedly alongside um, Indian peoples, uh, among many of the same Shawnees with whom he, had, you know, he encounters some of the same Shawnees who had adopted him or who had been related to those who had adopted him um, 20 years earlier. Um, and that's a remarkable story because I think it really defies expectations. Uh, this is what I call the rise of Apple Creek or the rising, or this remarkable um, reconciliation among peoples. And again, I try to unpack what are the factors, what are the circumstances that allow people in this case to overcome uh, what had been such um, truly um, dark and bloody differences um, in the Ohio Valley. So what, what are, briefly, what are some of those? Well, I how, think, how did that yeah, happen? Look, I think, again, the weakness of the Spanish authority there um, leaves a lot of room for the locals to, to play uh, uh, and to find reasons to, to not, um, to get along with one another to one degree or another, to accommodate. I think the balance of numbers also is crucial. I think to the extent that American numbers remain limited and Indian numbers are relatively, at least the local Shawnee and Delaware populations are balanced with the American populations in numbers. There's a balance of power there, maybe a balance of powerlessness that neither can really um, simply turn on one another. There's also a greater threat posed by other Indians, in this case, the Osage, who are the most powerful Indian nation in the lower Missouri Valley there, um, whose uh, lands are to the west of uh, Apple Creek, basically, uh, that they pose a threat that both Americans and Indi and Shawnee Indians recognize and sort of creates a, a need to coalesce against the Osage. And that, I think, is a larger theme, too, that I think my book tries to bring forward, which is 
I don't want this to be constructed as what I call a kumbaya story where, you know, sometimes people, oh, they just sit around the campfire singing kumbaya together because they've now learned to get along with one another. No, there's, there's larger factors in play here. Um, the weakness of the state, um, the balance of numbers, the presence of a, of a shared enemy, a dual threat that I think contribute to it. Uh, but I think uh, it gives it Im- important balance for us. Um, and in that sense, uh, you know, sometimes, again, you get situations, again, going back to your global context, thinking about other ana- you know, places we might mm-hmm. think about this going on in, um, where group A and group B make common cause against group C, uh, basically. It's not, that they, it's not that violence is completely eradicated from the relationship. It's just turned outward against someone else. Uh, but then when that external threat is removed or the, and the state comes in or numbers shift, uh, the relationship sort of founders or the common ground that was once found is lost. And that is a theme of my book is that these situations, these places and times that I examine uh, to varying extents don't endure. So one of the themes that I'm particularly interested in exploring is not simply how and why to explain when and where these places you know why they why we get these moments of accommodation or these places of accommodation and these and these oftentimes extended periods of accommodation um, and constraints on violence and indeed peace if not always friendship um, mm-hmm. and sometimes some degree of peace and friendship um, but why those moments typically don't last or why they fall apart and then the larger again argument in the book is trying to understand why they occur why they fall apart how we remember these moments or sometimes forget them, or how we sometimes misremember them and turn them into what I call wishteries, uh, which is another genre that I'm sort of interested in playing out in the book as well. And finally, just finally, and finally though, and I think this is, I think really important to why I wrote this book and why I wanted to take up this topic, is even if this is a legacy of broken concord, um, even if these moments don't last, these are not simply, I think, I think we should not treat them simply as historical cul-de-sacs. I think they do have lessons to impart to us, to think about how we are not ever fated to sort of eternal enmities, um, how people can break through um, cycles of violence. Um, And I I hope, you know, without turning this into in any way a kumbaya project, I hope that it does give us, the book does give us some reason to sort of think beyond all of the things that divide us. How does Apple Creek, uh, there's one chapter, Apple Creek rising, Apple Creek falling. So how does Apple Creek fall? Well, I think in between that is the chapter on the Lewis and Clark expedition, as you mentioned, that takes us to Fort Clatsop. And indeed, I find Lewis and Clark to be fascinating central figures, both in the accommodations they're able to, to strike with Indian peoples and the necessity for them to make those accommodations and how they evolve and adapt uh, along the way and how their diplomacy evolves and adapts along the way um, uh, and the limits on their evolution and ad- adaptation as well. But then Lewis and Clark both come back to Missouri when it becomes now an American territory. It becomes part of the United States. First is now part of the Louisiana Purchase Territory, uh, then ultimately uh, becomes the state of Missouri. Uh, and Lewis and Clark play pivotal roles there as governors. Uh, Lewis first in just a brief period until before his suicide. Clark for much a lengthier period, and then as a most, the most important first territorial official, and then um, 
Indian superintendent in the territory, really have a very important hand overseeing Indian relations. But what really I think decisively shifts and the fall of Apple, of Apple Creek as a place of intercultural accommodations is really the change in numbers uh, and the change in the power of the American state. Um, that before the War of 1812, the American state was constrained by imperial rivals and powerful Indian peoples to the West in particular. Um, after the War of 1812, those rivalries fall away uh, and American numbers in the territory uh, proliferate, multiply very quickly. The American population triples in the five or six years after the War of 1812 uh, in the area around Apple Creek, for example. So it's a huge population influx that people do, do not have any of the sense of tradition of accommodation with these with the Shawnees and Delawares in the area and really just want Shawnee and Delaware land. And there, the logic of settler colonialism quickly takes hold, uh, one in which that's a term that's now a term of art, which is used on Twitter approximately every 4.3 seconds, I believe. Uh, science shows that. But, <laughs> yes, it's still, it um, but it's still not a familiar term. So what's settler colonialism? Settler colonialism, I think the best way to distinguish it is co colonialism wears many faces. Um, uh, there's, set, there's colonialism that's not so much bored of, of seeking to settle on lands as it is seeking to establish trade on, on over those and to gain access to the resources of those lands. But settler colonialism is a particular variant, not unique to the United States by any means, which is why you see it in the, as you say, on the Twitter sphere or wherever every 4.3 seconds, um, is of that variant which in, involves the settlement uh, and also then the logic being of eliminating Indian peoples or indigenous peoples from those lands. Uh, because in settling the lands, taking it over by the new settler population, you are literally pushing out um, the indigenous population. I, I even like region. to think of it sometimes as colonialism from the bottom up, um, since sometimes settlers are, be, well, at least certainly in the 1790s, uh, Washington's idea of Indian policy is very different than settlers' idea of Indian policy. <laughs> well, um, look, and I think that that's an important distinction I, I make throughout the book between that we often, again, conflate the interests of Western American settlers, pioneers in, in our parlance, with the interests of the United States. Uh, and to some sense, and to some extent, they do align. But as you just pointed out, in George Washington's mind, many of those settlers were squatter banditti, pirates, land pirates, he called them oftentimes, because they were sometimes interfering with his own expansive land speculative claims, but also because they interfered with the orderly settlement of the frontier by the national government and the orderly keeping of peace, in a sense, on the frontier, that they created problems and, and expense for the uh, United States. Uh, and that tension is one that continues across American westward frontiers, uh, that there is that the alignment between what is the interest of the United States and what is the interest of Western pioneers, Western American pioneers, is not always in line. Which is particularly difficult when they're citizens in a democratic republic. And therein lies the tale of the fall of the United States, that we often, you know, again, we talk about the 18th, uh, fall of, excuse me, the fall of Apple Creek, and the, then the larger story, I think, that it exemplifies, um, that it is a story of democracy's triumph. Um, and in a sense, democracy, or democracy makes um, demography into destiny. Uh, by which I mean, insofar as white men exercise their democratic power 
um, in this rising Jacksonian era, um, and are and that that insists on, and they bring, they force the state to follow, in a sense, in ejecting Indian peoples and opening up more and more lands for white settlement. Uh, and that's the story, in some ways, of the fall of Apple Creek. And the, the tragedy of it, in some ways, is the way in which William Clark gets caught up in it. Uh, William Clark, both from the experience he has as a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition, and his own inclinations that, at least in some ways, tend towards some degree of protection for Indian peoples, the ways in which that politic, that policy uh, gets overrun. Clark himself gets overrun electorally when the state of Missouri becomes, is becoming a state. Clark runs for governor. He thinks he's going to win easily because it's an, uh, he's the most famous person in the, in the, in the new state. Uh, he has the, he's the sort of you know, person of longstanding. He's, he had been the appointed governor at that point. But really, his opponents run a democratic campaign, a populist campaign against him as a, you know, too friendly to the Indians, too good to the Indians. Uh, and he loses in a landslide. Let me try an idea out on you, which I think I, I probably tried out on undergraduates. They didn't know they were being mistaught. But um, uh, there's a way in which I hadn't thought about Clark at all, and I should have. I was thinking, uh, but Clark represents, let's call it the Virginian view. It's uh, towards Indian policy. It's hierarchical, as Virginia mm -hmm. is up until the Civil Rights era. Virginia is one of the only Jim Crow constitutions which eliminates poor whites abil men's ability to vote. Um, so Virginia is always hierarchical. Um, it has a sense of the noblesse oblige. Um, it has a sense of it has a sense of we've got to do something for we have an obligation to natives because they're lesser than us because that's what you do. People higher on the hierarchy should be nicer to people lower on the hierarchy. So that's kind of the Virginia view. And, and Jefferson, Washington's policy, uh, which is, I mean, admittedly forwarded by Henry Knox, who is definitely not from Virginia, but then, then it, it, it segues neatly into Jefferson's overall view. Lewis and Clark are, are the two chief, in many ways, emissaries of that view. And, by 1820, when Clark runs for election as an actual honest-to-God governor of Missouri, um, it's so old-fashioned. <laughs> I mean, it's so behind the times. It's right there with James Run Monroe wearing knee breeches. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's the, the, the antiquity of it. And it's just completely overwhelmed. I mean, of course, Virginia, even in 1830, is not going to allow small landholders or mechanics, blacksmiths to vote in the elections that, but the rest of the country just has swept around it. So that, that increasingly that, that, that view of Indian relations, which seems to be tied to some sort of idea of cultural hierarchy and noblesse, um, it's just gone. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really, I mean, it's very close to this, to the interpretation I put here. Mm -hmm. I guess I would spin it a little bit of one, that Jefferson's hierarchy is always compromised. Uh, that, you know, on the one hand, Jefferson has certainly, there's the hierarchy with Indians, but there's a place for Indians that Jefferson still, I think, entertains. And men like Lewis and Clark, very much as Jeffersonian disciples, entertain about Indians in the American Republic. Um, yeah. That I think Clark, though, even moves a little bit beyond even that frame and his relations with Indians. I think moved beyond even where Jefferson because, because I mean because Jeff, Jefferson did not have Indian friends but as you make clear Clark has he is he is I mean it always sounds like a, a what racists always say but his some of his his friends are Indians yeah no, I mean, he, and they they trust him they they have deep they 
show deep personal trust to William Clark that they will not show to other people. Indeed. I would say not only does he have friends, but he has friends in Missouri, in Louisiana territory, who are very friends, who are friends with the Indians, often intermarried with Indians, and often engage deeply in, in, in trade with Indians. And so their economic interests are also tied to a particular set of politi a political economy. But Jefferson's political economy also, in a sense, anticipates Andrew Jackson's by trying to open up more lands for you know, his yeoman farmer ideal. Uh, whether it's yeoman farmers or planters is not always clear, but trying to open up more, more lands. I think that the thing for Clark, as you say, where he becomes an anachronism in his own time, is that Clark tries to adhere for a time to a Jeffersonian world that is becoming increasingly Jacksonian um, in its relationship with Indians and its view not of Indians as having really a place in the Republic as Indians who need to make way for the Republic's expansion of any kind. Again, that simplifies it too much, but I think, look, the tragedy of William Clark is, though, that he lives too long uh, and that he, in the 1820s, no longer as governor, but as the superintendent of Indian Affairs, is the one who's negotiating dozens of treaties with Indian peoples leading to their um, ejection, their, their eviction, to their removal, which I guess is the euphemistic term that we put on what is an ethnic cleansing, um, in terms of both from Missouri and elsewhere, it is Clark's name that is attached to so many of those treaties um, that, that basically destroy what had been once in place at a place like Apple Creek. So he not only does he live long enough to see his early work destroyed, he actually signs the treaties that deface his early work and upend it. In, he, he is, if not the architect, at least the engineer of the downfall of the very kind of possibilities that I think his earlier travels and his earlier governorship or governance had at least uh, left some space for. But again, I, he, is, he is trampled on by the forces of Jacksonian democracy, by the forces of American democracy, by the power of white man's democracy in that sense. Um, he's, he's trampled on by the forces of uh, a country which has more eligible voters than any other. Um, I mean, we, we say it's white man's democracy, but it's it's a hell of a lot better than even England. Well, certainly England in, in 1830. This is this is this is we, we, we I, I mean, we I think we want to we want to have it so that a flawed thing led to a flawed thing or a bad thing led to a bad thing. But in many ways, something very good, something very politically good also had some very bad consequences. Right. But I think and look, if we're going to extend this argument out, um you know, Washington and Adams, for example, go back to what you were talking about a moment ago, certainly had a much more hierarchical view and a less democratic view of where the American Republic should go than Thomas Jefferson. Um, but their view offered greater, certainly, protections to Indian peoples in terms of the, 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 uh, the speed at which American expansion would take place, American territorial expansion, American settlement would take place. Um, like, you know, so in that sense, I think it's uh, it's complicated. But look, the other side of this is also the expansion of white man's democracy uh, is also the expansion of slavery. Indeed, Thomas Hart Benton, the senator from Missouri, makes the sort of observation in Clark's time, you know, the, the basically the removal of Indians makes opens the way for the expansion of slavery. Uh, and that certainly is part of the story, too. So when we think about the expansion of democracy, it is also entwined in parts of the United States with the expansion of slavery. Now, again, this is a complicated argument because, again, 
we've often been taught of frontiers and Wests as the places where Americans go to get free or to get freer. And that is certainly part of the story, but we can't, I think, leave out the flip side of those coins, in a, of that coin in a sense. Well, let's finish up with Dodge City. So how is Dodge City a place of peace and friendship? Well, again, let me just, first of all, back up a little bit. The title of the book, Peace and Friendship, comes from the coins, the medals, the peace medals that Lewis and Clark carry with them, and as did many other American emissaries. Actually, it goes back to the colonial period, but the, the specific ones are emblazoned with the phrase peace and friendship, uh, and then the clasping of hands between an, basically an American and an Indian on them. And they were meant to sort of be these gestures, these tokens um, of peace and friendship. Now, again, I think one of the things I play with in the book is the extent to which even in these moments of concord, uh, one gets peace sometimes, friendship sometimes, not always both and not always, well, you know, as promised or as, uh, as pledged certainly on the medal. Um, but Dodge City makes for an interesting chapter to conclude the book. Because as I said at the beginning of this conversation, um, Dodge City would seem the least likely place to have a place in a book titled Peace and Friendship. Um, we think of Dodge City as the exemplification of the Wild West, as the place in which violence was most unconstrained, um, in which, to cite back to your introductory remarks uh, in your in, uh, that preface this conversation, uh, Dodge City is the place where we think of as having gunfights on a daily basis. And Western lore has certainly erected as such, so much so that Dodge City remains today a metaphor, going back to the global context, when in Vietnam or in Iraq or wherever, when people wanted to talk about Wild West, sometimes they would use that phrase, Wild West, they'd often say, this place is like Dodge City, meaning it's completely lawless and violent, um, and that there's you know, basically violence and gunfights going on all the time. And to some extent, the story of Dodge City's origins are very much in that blood-soaked uh, beginnings. Uh, it is... It, Dodge City's origins are connected to, again, the ejection of Indian peoples from their lands on the central southern plains. Um, it is connected to the expansion of the railroad, buffalo hunting, and the extermination of the buffalo. Dodge City rises first as a place for bison hunting, uh, as an entrepot for shipping bison skins and so forth. Um, you know, and it is in that period an, an exceptionally violent place. But Western mythology has also suggested that West, that Dodge City during its heyday as a cow town, as the place to which Texas Longhorns get driven for a brief period up from Texas to the rail depot at Dodge City, uh, for a variety of reasons they are at Dodge City for a few years, um, and that this era of, of Dodge City is also seen as being equal in its violence, uh, and it's where the cowboys come in, shoot them up, and so forth, and, and that's why a million Westerns have been constructed on, on that tale uh, or on that history. Um, in fact, though, in Dodge City, I think, um, we get an example of where some degree of gun control is enforced, um, where there's a sign at the center of town basically saying the carrying of firearms is strictly prohibited. And at least the way the law was supposed to work is that when cowboys came into town off the trail, they were supposed to check their guns. Uh, now, that law is not enforced perfectly. 
Um, it's not even within Jodge City. There are certain zones which it's enforced less effectively than others. Uh, but it is enforced to such an extent that there is a significant decrease in gun violence um, in the years. There's still lots of drunken brawls. Uh, there's still lots of drunken fighting, and there's a lot of drunken disorderly behavior uh, when the cowboys come to town. Uh, but the kind of homicidal violence that you see in a place like Los Angeles, as you mentioned um, 20 years earlier, you don't get that same level of homicides. And compared to other mining boom towns, for example, Dodge City is not nearly as bloody a place, uh, in part because the, um, there is some degree of gun control enforced, um, which I think constrains violence, constrains bloodshed at least, uh, constrains homicides, reduces homicides. Also because there is a corrupt system of law enforcement in place, um, which is widespread in the United States at the time, of basically fee-based law enforcement, that, that sheriffs, marshals, um, constables get paid for making arrests in a sense. So there's a certain incentive for police not to shoot first. Um, uh, that, that there's an incentive to, 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 to try to arrest people and, and, and sort of get paid in a sense. So it's not exactly a, again, it's, the, it's not exactly a system we would recommend because it brings all sorts of corruption with it, but it, but it, it has its, it, it does work in certain ways. And I think um, it, um, it's something that I think, again, the lessons are not always perfect or clear, um, but they're, I think, important. And this is, I think, the larger takeaway in some ways that, you know, we wish that history was really predictive um, that, or prescriptive, that you could sort of simply look at the past and, you know, the famous aphorism being, you know, let's learn from the past so we don't repeat it, or, you know, some version of Santayana's quote. Um, we, I don't think it, it works quite so neatly. I'm, I'm more a fan. I tend to use Mark Twain's line that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, and I think in that sense, there are a lot of interesting rhymes uh, in this history, in this alternative history, in this adjacent history um, that I think do have resonance for us. Um, uh, they're not always clear and they're, not always, and they're sometimes contradictory. Um, uh, but that I, and sometimes I think they're based, we can lapse into this genre that I call wishteries in which this is, that is, you know, a version of, of myth in which we, it's the history we wish for. Um, and I think some of the stories I tell, uh, Lewis and Clark being one of them, I think, especially during the bicentennial hoopla, um, lapsed into wishtery. Dodge City, certainly I don't want to turn into a wishtery, a place of, you know, of light and, and, and you know, a place of perfect peace and friendship. It certainly was not that. Um, but I do think it also wasn't what we have mythologized it in the, in the um, more violent version of its history. Uh, and that is something I think we should pay closer attention to. And there are contemporary lessons to be drawn. This is an alternative history. Um, why can't it be a history? Why can't this be integrated into a, a, a narrative that seeks to be a little bit more, um, seeks to show the ambiguities, um, the, the nooks and the crannies, and explain why the nooks and the crannies are um, important to understand, as important to understand as the main hallways? Uh, I think I, that's, that's, I could not have put it better. 
um, in terms of that's that is exactly what I hope uh, readers will take. But well, I mean, I just well, let me but let me continue. I, I, yeah. I think I said to you earlier that I had been reading another book so completely different called Nehru's India, which looks at the history of India and, and tries to dispel seven myths about modern India. And at the end of the book, I um, was wondering, and I, you know, if we record a conversation with her, I'll ask her this. Uh, why didn't she just write a history of modern India? Um, I mean, it's important, I think, to, to I see that it's important to puncture the myths, but why wasn't she writing her own damn history of Nehru's India? And so I'm asking you, I mean, didn't you think of just writing your own history of the West? Well, I did um, previously. So I, the book that, no, so the book that I had previously written, the last book, was this very short introduction. And I should say, you know, the very short introduction series, which Oxford has maybe there must be four or 500 titles in that series now on all manner of subjects. Um, you know, I often think of it, and you're strictly limited to 35,000 words in that um, series, which I found very constraining, I have to say. And I leave out an awful lot of things that I thought were really important, but- Did you leave out this book? I, Was it <laughs> So it's funny because I, the last paragraph of the very short introduction speaks to these kind of moments of convergences of possibilities. And, I, and I, when I finished that book, I said, you know, I didn't really do justice to, to those moments, to those nooks and crannies, as you put it. Um, and those places deserve, those times deserve more attention, more spotlight than they've been given. They are a crucial part of this larger history. And look, I do not want to claim that I'm alone on this. There are a lot of other really, really important books uh, in recent decades. My history draws on lots and lots of other really important work. It synthesizes lots and lots of other books that I think have put forward, um, have sort of challenged um, the sort of um, overarching histories um, in which violence ever holds sway, for example. Um, but, um, but I still thought there was a place to try it. But I think, yes, the goal is that, um, that the next time I write my, may, okay, how about this? When I go to write volume two, uh, or, or the uh, the new edition. If they ask me to do a new edition of my very short introduction, I'll find more space for these moments and times. That said, you have to promise me that I'm going to get more than 35,000 words. Indeed, when I started writing this book about peace and friendship, the joke I always tell is, I, I told people I'm going to write an alternative history. I'm going to write a history of peace and friendship in the American West. And they said, oh, you're planning on writing another very short book. <laughs> but this one's 100,000 plus words. So it's not yeah. that short. No, it's not. It's not sure. It's not. It's 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 actually just the right length uh, for me these days. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> yeah, for re reading and writing. Um, so let's conclude by asking you about your your role now that you've been emeriti you've emeritized yourself yes. uh, at UCLA, and now you're at the Autry Center, um, which I've Autry Museum of the American West, which you know I've heard wonderful things about for years and years and years, like from Virginia Scharf, who I saw in the back of your on the back of your mm -hmm. book. So what's the Autry Museum of the American West? The Autry Museum of the American West. And let me start by saying, I hope all of the listeners to this podcast, whether from Los Angeles or points far, uh, will find their way at some time uh, into the Autry Museum of the American West, which I would argue is the preeminent museum uh, of the American West. It was founded by Gene Autry and his wife, Jackie Autry. Um, and their vision was always not to create a museum about the cowboy or the museum about singing cowboys or the museum about Gene Autry. Their vision was always to create a larger, a museum that would sort of grapple with the larger history of the American West and the larger mythology of the American West. Um, 
And I have now, I've had a long association with the museum, often through a split appointment between my appointment at UCLA and the Archie, but now I am the president CEO and the director of the museum. Um, and I think I have the opportunity to really bring this larger, more complicated history of the American West to a much broader public audience uh, through the museum. Uh, the Autry's mission, which is one that I celebrate, is to try to bring together the stories of all peoples of the American West, connecting the past and the present to inspire our shared future. Uh, and that's a mission, as I say, that in many ways informed and inspired me to write this book, uh, both in terms of trying to bring together stories, not to, I think one of the things that we try to emphasize at the Autry is um, we are more than just a multicultural institution, a multicultural place, studying the many peoples. We're the bringing together. So we're an inter, the focus is on intercultural history, on the mixing and mingling of peoples uh, and the way in which that has created the American West. So that's one part of it that I think shows up in this book. Um, and the other is really thinking more specifically about what is the meaning of the past? How do we connect the past and the present? And what, in what ways might it inform and indeed inspire our shared future? And I think that, that also is something that I very much wanted this book to try to do and to provide at least one kind of blueprint for what I hope the Autry Museum can do uh, playing in this much broader public realm than we in the academy uh, sometimes are allowed to do, especially when our audience is principally captive students. <laughs> My guest today has been Stephen Aaron. He's author of Peace and Friendship, An Alternative History of the American West. Stephen, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It has been an absolute pleasure. I love the fact how wide-ranging this conversation is. I had to say I had no expectation at the start. I knew the places in my book. I had no idea how far and what reaching we would go in this conversation. So it's been a real pleasure to think with you about that. A confession to you and listeners, nor did I. It just <laughs> sort of, it sort of happened. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 